working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Seattle-based drummer and band leader Tariq Abuzaid. Tariq has spent his entire life in Seattle, attended the University of Washington, and has carved a place for himself on the Seattle scene as one of the drivers of creative original music there. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer, it's easy. Just go to workingdrummer.net and along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon. Every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so through that website or on Facebook and Instagram. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This episode is sponsored by Sure Microphones, who is calling on drummers and percussionists from 44 countries around the globe to enter Drum Mastery 2019, the Sure Drum Contest. This is your chance to win a five-day trip to London with two days at Metropolis Studios, a one-on-one drumming workshop with Ash Sohn, a drum miking workshop with a pro studio engineer, and $5,000 in Sure gear. In addition to the grand prize winner, second and third prize winners will receive Sure gear packages worth $3,000 and $1,000 respectively. Visit drum-mastery.sure.com and submit a solo video. The deadline for submissions is April 15th. There will be 45 finalists, one from each of the 44 countries selected by Sure and one wildcard fan favorite. Winners will be selected from the finalists by an all-star international jury. All 45 finalists will receive a Sure MV88 Plus video kit, which is really cool. Look that up if you don't know what it is. And a pair of Sure SE215 sound-isolating Bluetooth earphones. Those will come in handy on the plane. For more details and to apply online, visit drum-mastery.sure.com, and we'll have a link to that site on this episode page. Once again, deadline for submissions is tax day, April 15th. Okay, so after a brief hiatus, we are once again ready to hear an update from our buddy Arjuna Contreras about life out on the road with Reverend Horton Heat and his move from Dallas to Nashville. So how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm actually in Dallas right now. Uh, just got back up here yesterday. I was down at South by Southwest for uh, the second half of last week trying to do my part to keep Austin weird for a few days. <laughs> and, uh, well, more specifically, I was at, like, all the anti-South by Southwest events. Like, I didn't have a wristband or anything. So I was just kind of at all the other venues. But saw some really good stuff and met up with a bunch of friends and, you know, had a blast. <clears throat> like I was telling you last time, I'm kind of on vacation this month. So I've been in a couple different spots, you know, uh, spent some time in Nashville. Uh, went to South by and uh, I'm actually up in Dallas right now working on some uh, a recording project with the Rev right now. That's actually where I just just stepped out of right now. We just finished up um, uh, for the day. Well, let me, let me ask you a little bit about South by Southwest because it's always been around for so many mm-hmm. years and yet it seems like it's taking on a new form. And tell us, because I have a feeling you have uh, 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 more experience than a lot of us being down there and being close, and I'm I'm guessing performing down there. 
What mm-hmm. can you give us a brief history of where, what it was, what it is now, what what performers can expect or visitors can expect these days? Well, these days you can expect a lot, a lot of traffic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it started off. My understanding is it started off as a purely musical event, you know, uh, and it was, uh, I believe, shorter. You know, just a number of days. Now it's like a, I think all told, like a week and a half worth of not only music stuff, but also film and tech. And uh, gosh, I think this year, even some of the politicians were down there. They had some uh, speeches and discussions, you know. Uh, So it's kind of branched into a cultural kind of a thing now. It, you know, I see I have played at it many times over the years. I haven't played recently. Um, I have a lot of friends that are that are playing showcases down there. And, you know, honestly, my experience was always that it's a whole lot of headache and work for uh, minimal returns, more than likely, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's fun to play, but, you know, there may or may not be that many people at your set. And, you know, your set is likely going to be, you know, 20 minutes or so, maybe half an hour at most, depending on what showcase it is. And, you you know, might, you very might well be playing at like noon <laughs> or, you know, 1 a.m., you know. Yeah. It's, you know, these showcases are going on all day and all night. And, um, you know, depending on the venue, depending on like maybe what, uh, management company or record label is presenting the showcase as part of South by Southwest, or even as part of like the, you know, the anti South by Southwest stuff, you know, the other events that are happening around town <clears throat> at the same time, you know, it, it really depends on what kind of exposure you're really going to get. Is there something in the anti South by Southwest that has something to offer? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a similar type of thing, you know, like these, they're, they're like similar showcases. They're just not sh- sanctioned by the, by the festival. Okay. But, you know, to me, like they were even like, there's a lot of more Americana type stuff. You know, there was country stuff happening, you know, South by tends to be like, as far as from what I could tell, there's a lot of like, you know, pop rock, you know, like there's a lot of DJ stuff going on there seem to be more hip hop than I ever remember coming from the clubs. Like, um, so it's more of that kind of stuff. But if you're like a country act or Americana, mm-hmm. like, you know, venues like the continental club or the San Jose hotel, like has an outdoor deal that's happening. They call South by San Jose. I mean, it's a similar type of situation though, as far as the schlep, you know, with yeah, your gear right. and finding, finding parking and, you know, they're just events that are happening, con- you know, at the same time as, as you know, the regular South by Southwest stuff. It's just at, you know, at venues that aren't part of the actual festival. Gotcha. It's been, you know, it's been part of the, you know, the, the culture of, of making music and getting started for so many years that um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, seemed, it seemed like a, a mecca of sorts for people to do. And, um, mm-hmm. with all the, uh, the, the way it's changed so much, I question whether that is the, the same feeling anymore, uh, not to yeah. talk trash. I don't, I mean, I don't want to come a, come across as talking trash about it, but just kind of being realistic about your expectations. Um, if it's a project that you're supporting, 
um, or involved in so you know what you're doing and maybe uh, plan ahead of time and maybe anticipate the uh, the journey and and maybe plan some shows around South by Southwest to and from. And that's what I think a lot of ba- a lot of a lot of bands do that. Like they'll play stuff like you know in San Antonio and Houston and mm-hmm. Louisiana or Dallas. You know, bef- you know they'll plan it as it's part of you know as part of a tour that they're on. Right. Right. Um, you know, definitely, you know, I wouldn't come from like the Northeast just to do South by Southwest and then go back, you know, go back you know, to New York or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, well, cause first of all, I don't, I don't think any of those showcases like pay or anything. It's, you know, it's, all for you know for exposure, quote unquote. Well, maybe just but, maybe at the very least, shedding some light on the on the realistic on what's realistic. You know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, I do hear of like you know promoters and whatnot also being there. A friend of mine actually um, has a great rock band and had a promoter that came up to him and heard him play, and he promotes like all over. Uh, I think he was saying Norway or something. We'll check in more. We'll check in next week and find out kind of where you're at and what's going on with uh, with more things throughout this week as your as your week continues to flow. Yeah, that sounds great, man. Okay, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you, RJ. Safe travels to you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Talk okay. to you soon. See you, man. Bye. Bye, bye. So I had a great talk with Tarek about what he's up to there in Seattle. He's a really smart, energetic dude and has some well-formed and well-expressed ideas about everything from getting paid what you're worth to how emotional obstacles affect your playing. So I hope you dig this talk with Tarek Abuzaid. I have uh, my own uh, group, Happy Orchestra, which is a six-piece kind of jazz uh, funk deal. Um, and I write and, and record uh, for that. And uh, we put out a record a couple years ago, and now I'm kind of doing a track-a-month kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and not playing out so much, but we get calls to do kind of festivals and private gigs. Um, and then, uh, I've been playing with an organ trio in Seattle called McTuff, mm-hmm. uh, that I first started playing with in 2011. Um, that's really so cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a really incredible, uh, organist named Joe Doria in Seattle. Uh, and he was one of the, the people I kind of sought out when I was younger. Um, uh, he's just, you know, an incredible player and it was exactly the type of music that I liked to listen to and wanted to play. And so, right. I kind of scoped out that gig for a while and eventually got it. Um, and, um, that's not so busy these days, but every couple months we'll do a little, little run of Northwest shows, uh, a great guitar player in that band, Andy Coe. Uh, and we play together a lot in various other things. Um, and then, uh, I, there's a saxophonist in Seattle named Skerrick, uh, Mm -hmm. who, um, is kind of in that sort of, um, like New Orleans jazz fest sort of jam band scene. Right. Uh, uh, and he, he played with, um, who's the Primus guy? Uh, Les, oh, yeah, Cla- Les Claypool. Man. Yeah. Uh, and then he had a couple of, um, other pretty well-known bands in the nineties with Matt Chamberlain and some other guys. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he has his own sort of quartet Skerrick band that I play in, um, when he's around. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then from there, it's kind of just one-offs, um, with local, um, players at, you know, small bars and restaurants. Right, right. And would you say the the bulk of your schedule is taken up by these kind of original projects, um, or is there more you know, mainstream cover whatever that you're involved in? I can't do those gigs without getting upset. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I also I started. Um, I've been playing guitar and bass for a long time and mm. I started performing on bass a couple of years ago. Cool. Um, as a way to sort of give myself access to those gigs with a smaller kind of physical workload. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just got tired of hauling drums out to do those kinds of gigs because it just didn't feel like it was worth the effort. Right. Cause I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't challenged by it and it's fun to a degree, but not really that fun. <laughs> uh, and, and I just find, I find playing cover music to be much more fun on the bass for me. Um, and so I've, I've kind of transitioned those whenever I get gigs like that, I'll try and do them on the bass. Yeah. Uh, and so for the most part, my drum performance schedule is, is either my original music or the original music of somebody I like. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I, I kind of intentionally directed it that way. Right. That's, that's an interesting, uh, approach. Cause it, it, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> if, if you get mad, you're not mad on the drums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was, there was just, there were too many times where I would be sitting there just waiting for the gig to be over, mm-hmm. which is just an awful feeling. I think we've all been there more yeah. than, at yeah. least a few times. Yeah. And you, I mean, you, it, sometimes it happens halfway through the gig. Sometimes it happens right <laughs> on downbeat right. <laughs> and you start to feel like, like every part of your body starts getting sore and you're not paying attention. And you know, the other band members kind of can notice to varying degrees and that's a bummer for them. So it's just not good for anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to, to cut that out, um, both for myself and for, the sake of other people who, who want to do a good job. Right, <laughs> you know? right. If I'm not going to do it well and I'm not going to be happy, then it doesn't do anybody any good for me to be there. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so obvious question, how has, uh, learning the bass and starting to perform on the bass affected your, your drum life? It's been amazing. Um, it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, the drum bass lockup is always like a huge, thing that we're always thinking about. Right. Um, and it's, it's tuned my ears into, and not so much because of my playing directly, but because I've ended up hiring other drummers Mm -hmm. and noticing the differences among them as a bass player. Right. It really gives you an, an insight into what it is specifically that makes it difficult to play with a drummer mm-hmm. and, um, being able to sit in the bass spot and feel it through other drummers is just, it's been invaluable 
Yeah, uh, that's so interesting because like we've we've talked about you know as drummers will watch other drummers mm-hmm. and and judge them you know <laughs> inevitably. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it's a you know it's it's a tool to figure out like oh how how did he do that you know mm-hmm. how, how do I do that versus how did that drummer do that um, and if you don't like something they do. It's either you make a note of like, don't ever do that or, <laughs> or you kind of realize, oh, I've done that exact thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and, I would imagine that experience is just even more visceral and even more obvious yeah. from the bass chair. That's exactly because when you're just watching, you can't be sure where the source of the problem is. You know? <laughs> right. Because if the drummer and the bass player aren't locking up and you're on the outside of it, you don't know who is the one. I mean, unless it's blatantly obvious, but if it's just these micro kind of tempo problems or rushing drag, whatever, um, it's, it's hard on the outside to know exactly who's making the problem. Um, and you know, it's when I hire really great drummers, it, (laughs) it brings out my bass problems for sure. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, uh, playing the bass, there's a lot more uh, a effect that just like note length, mm-hmm. like little little things that I wouldn't have thought make a huge difference as a bass player make a huge difference. Right. Yeah, like note length, octave, uh, chord tones, whatever, plucking methods, um, and those minute the, the the outsize effect of those minute changes on the bass make me think of the outsize effect of minute changes on the drums, yeah. which, which aren't, I don't think as obvious when you do them, right. Unless you're really, really paying attention, which because we're doing so much and there's so much happening on top of us, it can be kind of hard to notice unless you're paying attention to it. So right. it just sort of, it focused my attention on different things. And, um, and I think, I think I'm an easier drummer to play with. Uh-huh. now and i i think i'm an easier bass player to play with because of my drumming they right. they, serve, they serve each other really well right right i i would imagine it also uh in addition to things to avoid it it clues you in as to why things work um yeah because yeah. i i was just thinking of um a gig i did recently with this bassist uh Kari simmons in atlanta and um, I'd seen him play a bunch of times before with a few different drummers. And, and f- like from from the audience perspective, I always perceived his bass playing as just right in the middle, just yeah. straight down the middle of the beat. Um, and when I actually played with him, I was like, whoa, he's way on the backside. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like until you like you said, until you get in the room or get yeah. on stage with somebody, you know, you know. I, I couldn't perceive that those drummers he was playing with were also on the backside. Like they were on the same page on the backside of the beat so that it was perceived as right down the middle. Um, what, what kind of music do you generally live in? Um, since I've been in Atlanta, I have been doing a lot of soul blues, funk, uh, pop gigs, top 40 corporate stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's been really cool because for most of my adult life before that in Kansas City and L.A., it was very jazz heavy. Mm. Um, so Atlanta has a, a good jazz scene, but it's not like the point of yeah. the jazz scene. So it- <laughs> <laughs> there are very few places left where it's the point. Right. I mean, in Kansas City, it's the point. Like uh. there's there's tons of great music in Kansas City and different scenes. But the jazz scene is just so deep, so old, so rich. 
Um, so coming to Atlanta really kind of forced me to, uh, to branch out, which I wanted to do anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, with, with Kari, uh, we did, um, a little, it was like a tribute show for Aretha Franklin's young gifted and black. Um, so, you know, um, uh, who was the bassist on that? It was Purdy on a lot of tracks and Al Jackson Jr. with, um, I'm blanking on the bassist. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Getty Lee, I think. Right. It was Lee. <laughs> best, if I remember correctly, best bassist ever. Yeah, um, Chuck um, Rainey. That's who it was. Chuck Rainey was on bass. Um, so yeah, like on that gig and just in general, since I've been in Atlanta, I've been really exploring like that partnership between the drums and bass in those kinds of music. I mean, I was well versed in it in the jazz world. Sure, um, but uh, I'd imagine Atlanta's like a layback town. Yes. Every yeah. <laughs> life, life is on the backside of the beat in Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, so, um, with the, uh, with the original projects you do, um, it sounds like you're, you're a leader or a co-leader on, on a couple of them. Is that right? Uh, happy orchestra is completely my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do all the work and all the writing for it. Um, the other ones, I'm a complete side guy. Um, there, uh, I used to be in a couple of bands that were sort of co projects. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think because of just what happens when you get older, people gravitate to the things that are working and they put, they put less effort into the things that, uh, aren't even if, you know, I, I wouldn't say that any of them were bad or doing poorly, but all the members just got pulled into other things. I started playing with McTuff. The horn players started playing with a, a really busy group and we just sort of got yep. pulled away. Right. Uh, and so because that's happened to me a couple of times already, I'm pretty hesitant to get into a situation like that unless everybody's really deliberate about, um, what kind of, uh, uh, commitment they're going to put into that thing, mm-hmm. you know, cause a lot of, a lot of times you'll get like the, Oh, let's start a band. And nobody's really talked about like, what does that mean? Yeah. And what's going to happen when you get a call to do something that's cool, right. that, but conflicts with the band. Right. Uh, and if that, if that band gets super busy, are you willing to drop what, whatever you've got going on now to, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I, I just, I haven't been in that position for a really long time anymore, but yeah. So for the other ones, other than happy, I'm essentially just a side guy and I'm kind of happy to, to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a lot easier and just show up and play the music. That's and, definitely where, where I live most of the time. Yeah. Um, but as I mean, far you as, have, so, sorry, you have to, you, cause there's just, it's too much work yeah. to do that with more than one, maybe two bands. Right. It's too much emotional totally. <laughs> stress. Totally. <laughs> for sure. Um, and as far as, uh, deciding to like lead your own group and build it from the ground up, was that, um, was that an artistic motivation, like a creative drive that you had, or just kind of wanting to control your own destiny a little more or, uh, I think it was both. Um, when I was in college, um, I, I just started to notice that the only people who were, successful and you know obviously successful means a lot of things but i i would just say the only people who were doing what they wanted to do and 
and supporting themselves mm-hmm. were whatever that is, were people that had their own thing, whether that was the thing that paid their bills, um, was sort of irrelevant, but it, it, it seemed to matter that you were creating music and hiring people. Mm-hmm. If you don't do those two things in a small town, I mean, Seattle's big, but musically it's, it's not that big of a scene. Right. Um, and there isn't just like this pile of work <laughs> that exists, you know, that you can just draw from. You, uh-huh. you sort of have to create the work here. Huh. And so if you're not a band leader, you're waiting around for the other work creators to right. call you. And right. if you're not a person that's contributing to that, then it's less likely that you're going to be getting calls. So it was important to me to, to be contributing so that I, I could be part of that. And then I, I just I thought, like, if you're a musician and you're not making music, you know, it's like being a computer programmer that doesn't program anything like what right, yeah. <laughs> this is job. This is what you're supposed to do. So, yeah. so both things were sort of important. Yeah. I think most, most musicians deal with the, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a two pronged thing. Like how do I support myself? How do I stay sane? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and sometimes those things are, are one and the same. Um, and people can create a project, whether it's, you know, an original jazz group or a fucking tribute band, um, yeah. that both supports them and fulfills them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, as, as far as like creating work, like you said, um, is, is Seattle a place where if like, if, if you have the motivation, if you're willing to do the legwork, is it, is it pretty easy to create opportunities for a band like yours or is it a constant kind of uphill <laughs> Uh, climb? Uh, that's a hard question to answer. I think dependent on a certain baseline of quality, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's, it's not that hard. Right. Seattle, uh, assuming, Seattle strikes assuming, me, it, it strikes me as a, a city and a scene that's generally receptive to creative endeavors. Yeah, like, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, there is a lot of original music here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has the, a kind of artsy vibe and, and, you know, people, people appreciate original originality more than, you know, it's not like we're in Vegas or right. some, some resort town where, or ho- like, like I was in uh, Honolulu not that long ago, yeah you know, uh-huh. and there are, there are some incredible music there because it's so beautiful to be there and there is a lot of work, but all the work is, you know, the hotels want you to play covers and, right. um, and so they, right. do, they do that really well. So, so that scene doesn't value originality as much as Seattle does, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. less money. <laughs> so there's a trade off there. Um, but yeah, I think if, if the music is listenable <laughs> and, and you're professional about how you present that, you have a good presence online um and you do some work to book some gigs that might not pay uh you know you'll you'll go in the red on some gigs it's not too hard to get start getting some corporate work and um there's a um an organization in town called gigs for you that the city contracts with and the airport and other businesses that are looking for bands. They go through this organization to find bands for their events. That's and cool. they're, they're really good about showing up on the scene to check out new bands. And, um, they sort of like to push the local original stuff. Um, so yeah, I, and 
and I think that having having my own band where I'm writing the music that is obviously to my taste, mm-hmm. it associates me with that kind of music. And so I'm more likely to get hired for music I like because I put that music out there and it's associated with me. Right. Right. Opposed to just being a drummer who gets called for whatever. That's a a really unique thing among cities, I think, because you talk about corporate work, you talk about that kind of partnership with, with local government. Um, you know, those, those high dollar private gigs in a lot of cities often go to the cover band, the tribute band, the, the whatever. Um, Yeah. But it sounds like in Seattle, like you said, if your stuff is listenable, (laughs) if it's well done, Uh um, the, uh, the city, uh, apparatus will, will support it. Yeah. I mean, we just did that band just did, uh, a corporate event for a tech company. It was like a convention of all their salesmen from around the country. It was like 500 people in a hotel ballroom. Yeah. And they hire this like original jazz funk fusion band (laughs) with with no singer. And it was just this. It was really weird. I was surprised that they wouldn't get some top 40s band in there. But, hey, it's what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, And the the person that hired me, um, she her method was just um, to look at the calendar of a jazz club. Mm hmm. She saw my name and clicked on, I guess she clicked on all the links on the calendar for that month. Uh, and I have a pretty strong website with lots of videos and it's, and it's sold her. mentioned uh college where did you go to college i went to the university of washington here in seattle right there in seattle and for music mm-hmm. jazz, what, studies. jazz studies what's that program like um it's fairly small um and i i wasn't quite sure i mean i knew i when i started college i was going there for computer science mm-hmm. um and uh, like I didn't do band in high school. I played drums in like the jazz choir <laughs> uh, just because it was like, oh, I just like playing, but it's not a serious thing. And right. um, and same when I got to UW, I went the, my first quarter was all math and science. And then I was just playing drums in the, the UW vocal jazz group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the end of that first year, I sort of noticed all the students around me in the programming department, all they did all day was just code, you know, which good for them. Um, Yeah. I mean, it it, it turns, (laughs) it it lights some people up. That's all they want to do. But, but I would rather do, man, I won't get into what I'd rather do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I was the same. I like, I do my homework. I wasn't bad at it, but I just, I wanted to spend all my free time with music. So when I noticed that I was like, well, this, this probably says something. I'm not going to compete with these people. I don't really want to be around that environment. So uh, I just made the switch and I just happened to be at that school. So I, I didn't seek out the best music program available to me. I just ended up in this place. Right. Um, and and I think because, because I wasn't a very serious young musician, um, it was okay for me to not be at Berkeley or not be at the new school or something right, like that. Right. I probably would have eaten shit pretty hard. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't read, I couldn't do anything. Um, and so it was a good school for me because 
the level was sort of at this medium place. Um, there were some amazing teachers, um, and some very driven students who were at my level. Mm -hmm. And so probably, you know, if I have a really badass student that wants to go to music school, I'm probably not going to send them there. Um, but for me, for that time, it was perfect. We've talked before, uh, about, um, those kind of, you know, non marquee music programs, um, and, and how good they really are because they don't, they don't attract, uh, you know, the top students, but in many cases they have unbelievable faculty. Um, mm -hmm. you'll get more and better opportunities to actually perform like mm -hmm. as part of the school ensemble. There's, yeah. uh, there's a bridge between the, the school and the professional scene because of the faculty, um, and, and those kind of like mid-level schools, I mean, I went to two of them. I went to Ball State for my undergrad in Indiana and I went to University of Missouri, Kansas City. Both good schools, uh, both great faculty, but not North Texas, not yeah. Berkeley, not USC or whatever. Yeah. Um, so who was your, uh, who was your primary teacher there? Oh boy. Um, well, there were just, there was a lot of turnover. Mm. Uh, so for drumming, uh, when I first got there, there was a guy named Tom Collier, who's predominantly, uh, a, a mallet player, mm -hmm. uh, and a badass vibraphonist. Yeah. Um, and, but a great drummer too. And, and he, he had a lot of classical percussion experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was my main drum guy. And then the head of the jazz department was a piano player named Mark Seals. And then there was a trumpet guy named Vern Sealer, who was a, just a really great all around teacher, mm -hmm. probably learned the most from him. Um, and then w we went through, uh, a bunch of local drummers after Tom decided not to teach as much. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had uh, a guy named John Bishop, uh, Steve Korn, uh, Mark Ivester, who were sort of like the three, kind of older statesman of Seattle jazz drumming. Right. And, and John Bishop is, is, uh, the, the grand poobah of that whole origin yeah. thing. Yeah. I interviewed, uh, Matt Jorgensen a year mm -hmm. or two ago. Um, and he's, he's heavily involved in that. We talked, talked a lot about that. It sounds like a really cool local yeah. record label production mm -hmm. company. It's about as legit as it gets yeah. in, in Seattle. They do a really great job. And I think, yeah, the best of, that kind of music is represented on that label mm -hmm. in, in the Northwest probably. Yeah. 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 Uh, so how old are you? I'm 35. Okay. So you got out of college. Like, 2006. So what was the scene like at that time and how did you kind of matriculate into it? <laughs> um, I was just so young. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think when I graduated, I was already teaching and I was already in performance groups at school, small groups mm -hmm. that sort of bled into real life. So by the time I graduated, whatever combo I was in or, or small group was already playing in local venues. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was so naive about the business, um, <laughs> and, and what exists. And I just had this idea of 
you, you know, which is probably still a pretty common idea. Oh, you just go out and play shows and you get fans and you get famous. Like <laughs> that's it. So step one shows two, you know, three, right. three step plan to being on tour and whatever. Yeah. It's more like a two step plan. Um, it's like step one shows <laughs> step three. famous. <laughs> Depression. <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> um, yeah. So I, I just started doing that. Um, and, and the teaching, uh, paid the bills and the shows just introduced me to the scene, mm-hmm. um, which was decently vibrant. Um, there are a lot of small venues in Seattle. There were more back then. It's, it's a little less now we're, we've kind of been suffering the, the Amazon effect for a long time. Yeah. Um, but is, uh, is Amazon buying music clubs too? <laughs> but, you know, it's just the cost of everything is skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so venues, small venues have been squeezed out and, and it's harder for them to just survive. And so they, they, you know, it's just harder to do business there. Yeah. You don't get as much and it's not their fault. It's just, it's expensive. So, yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, there were there were a lot of small venues and it wasn't that hard to play in them and there were still and it might just be that I was young and so I had a lot of young friends with not a lot of responsibilities and so there were a lot of people coming out. Right. Um and so it was vibrant and it was there was just a lot of energy floating around um and through through playing bills with all, you know, there aren't that many local musicians. So if you're in a band and you're playing out and you do it for a year or two, you've probably played with everybody in your scene already, you know? Um, and, uh, so that's how I was introduced to most of the people I play with now doing bills or, um, you know, the jam session thing, it does exist here, but it's not, I don't think it's a pathway to, to really being busy. Right. Um, yeah. That answer your question. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, and like, you know, talking about Amazon and, and the tech boom in general, I mean, when you were in college, when you were getting out of college, it was in full swing. Um, you know, I, not really, not really in 2005, yeah. like it was just getting started because Amazon there, there was a point at which Amazon moved uh, or, or took up a huge chunk of the downtown core, mm-hmm. what used to be the sort of industrial shit area that was basically empty um they they took they built all this commercial real estate there and amazon moves tens and tens of thousands of employees to this central location yeah um and i want to say that didn't really happen until the teens like past 2010 or something wow uh, definitely. Yeah. So the recession was 2008, 2009. Um, yeah, it didn't really happen until 2013, 2014. And, and at the height of, of the influx of Amazon's just hiring spree, it was some absurd number, like a thousand people were moving to Seattle every week uh. for two, two years. <laughs> and they were all, and they were all being paid $150,000 a year. Okay. Right. Obviously those the real exact numbers, but it's close. Yeah. And it was, it was enough to drastically change the cost of living for everybody. 
and the cost of commercial real estate for everybody. So yep. small venues, small businesses, now their rents are gigantic. Everything is just expensive. And, and the bulk of people with money are people who work 10 hours a day right? in an office. And what they want to do when they're done is go home, order food from an app, watch Netflix or play a video game. They're not going out. Right. They're not going anywhere. And so, so the the audience has shrunk. Mm -hmm. It's Um, interesting. I, my, my assumption was that, you know, when, when an industry kind of injects money and populace into an area, I I think we assume that that's good news for artists and musicians. There's more money, there's more people, there's, there's, you know, more for us to do our thing. Um, uh, and, up until like two minutes ago, I was like, well, well, was there, was there that initially? And then the, uh, you know, the prices went up and everybody, but it sounds like it was more of an immediate effect. Like yeah, I, property well, I, values went up. There's all these people that don't really give a shit about live music. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a cultural shift and it yeah. depends on the type of people and they're not bad people. They're just worked really hard. Right. And, and when you have the option of going out and taking a chance on, on a, a live original band, you might not know that much about mm-hmm. or going home and watching exactly what you want to watch <laughs> the moment you want to watch it in the comfort of your house yeah. for, for $10 a month. Yeah. It's, you know, that's not a hard calculation to make. For I'm us. a professional musician and sometimes <laughs> I go with option B. Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we're all, we're all guilty of it. Um, and I, I just think that there, like, have you been to the Bay area, San Francisco any, any time lately? A bit. Yeah. That's not a thriving music scene. Right. And, and the people I know that either live there now or live there not that long ago, they're not they don't have their sights on San Francisco as a home base. Right. They're, they're, they've either left or they're leaving or they're the bulk of their, you know, um, energetic work is not in the Bay Area right. because that culture has taken over that city. Mm-hmm. And and those people, God bless them. Good for them. They don't want to do that. They do don't you want think, to go. See do you think that culture is in danger of taking over Seattle? Is is Seattle the war is over? It has uh, taken over. Yeah. There's just there's so many of them. Um, yeah. And yeah. But so, it sounds like like you mentioned earlier, like the Seattle is promoting its original artists and its original uh, musicians to the extent that it can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it feels like uh, the, the city as a whole is kind of fighting the good fight uh, for for the scene. Yeah, because I, I think as as Amazon has had its effect, more and more young musicians are leaving. Mm-hmm. So the the pool of Seattle of of productive Seattle musicians is smaller, mm-hmm. um, and as the pool of receptive audience is smaller, and so you know it doesn't it doesn't uh, affect that much people who were already here and already busy, right? Right. But but most of the really talented young musicians coming out of UW or any of the, the schools, we have like this weird pocket of amazing high school jazz bands that hmm. win the Ellington thing every year and whatever. Um, they don't stick around. Right. They go to New York, they go wherever. Um, 
and just because that there's not there, there's not energy here for them right and there's not much of a future and so i if i had to bet i would say that seattle will be what san francisco is now in 10 years or something like that hmm. are you yeah. looking at are you, are you looking at leaving like what keeps you there why did you stay why do you um, stay i um my family's here mm-hmm. uh, I have a, uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago and my mom is, is getting up there Yeah, and I, I just have to stay, yeah. you know, I yeah. can't, I can't just ditch. And it's where you grew up, right? It is where I grew up and, and I'm tied in enough to where I, I'm busy enough. I can, um, I can do enough of the things that I like to do to justify staying I, I spent the first couple of months of last year in New York, mm-hmm. um, considering, you know, feeling it out, seeing what it's like. Yeah. Um, and it's, the music scene is incredible. You know, it's, the best people are there. The, the it is, it is New York. <laughs> yeah. And the culture, it, 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 it invites live music and it values live music. People pay a cover, you know, like in Seattle, people will walk away from a $3 cover, uh, they, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> which I mean, a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a thing in Seattle. People expect, or I'm sorry, in New York, people expect to pay 10, 20 bucks to get in a place right. and, and to be kicked out after the first set or pay another cover or a two drink minimum. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So the, the, the bar is set there and there's people feel good about contributing to that in a way they do not hear. And I think in most places, there's just a couple places in the country where that thing exists. Right. Right. LA was the same way. Um, a, f- a friend of mine referred to New York as the town that eats twenties. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's dead on. And I think people who live there and, and in LA, they're, they're used to just everything costing money. It costs money to park your car. It's just like, yeah. you know, so when you go see some live music, it's like, Oh, one more thing that costs money. Fine. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, exactly. and it's interesting. Like I, you, you're talking about Seattle and, 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 um, New York as far as paying a cover. And I had the same experience in Kansas city versus LA. It's like, you know, people would walk away from a $3 cover in Kansas City. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, and I think part of it is that because New York and L.A. have this reputation uh, of places with incredible musicians, people are more likely to take a chance. They're yeah. more likely to pay money on, to, for something they don't know exactly what it is because, hey, I'm in New York. It's going to be badass. Right. Or, hey, I'm in L.A. It's going to be really great. In Seattle, we don't have that. We don't have that assumption that what – is going to be in in that door is going to be amazing right you have to you have to know it you have to be familiar with it in order to value it and if you value it you'll pay the cover exactly Um, you know so we have there's like a grateful dead cover band in town that can play like 40 shows a month and sell out every time because it's they're a known quantity (laughs) and the people who like that music know exactly what they're getting and they'll pay 30 bucks you know but a new band that plays essentially the same kind of music with even the same people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm no joke. Like uh, that, it won't work out for them. So right, right. it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. So have you um, developed a, a kind of strategy or philosophy as a, a person in original bands to get people familiar, get people invested, and and get people to see the value in in what you do? Yeah. Uh, for one, um, I'm a very active social media user. (laughs) (laughs) I'm another person addicted to 
Facebook and, and all that. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty outspoken person. Uh, and so I've developed sort of this, you know, whatever community of people who know who I am on social media. And because, mm-hmm. because I'm active in this music scene, people who see me, uh, play or who are other musicians, they'll find me on Facebook and then, uh, they'll get to know me through what I write on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I put, I try to put, uh, a lot of content, video, audio on social media every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've transitioned happy orchestra to playing club dates to, I have this set up in my house right now with the, you know, drums and mics and interface and all these instruments. And, um, and I record, um, video and, and audio of those tracks and put them out online. Yeah. So instead of, instead of going to a venue and hoping to impress the people who aren't there, Mm-hmm. because they're not they don't they haven't left home and they're right. not paying cover um i'm i'm recording the music at home trying to make it look good and putting it out there mm-hmm. and and if and when it connects to enough people then i'll have a reason to go out and play a show right right yeah and that, that's, that's been the transition I've been making the last year is just, I've accepted the fact that, that, that story I told myself when I was in college isn't, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. The bands that have connected in, to an audience in that substantial way in Seattle are bands that did it mostly because they had some sort of online content that matched the cultural moment for whatever reason. Right. Right. It's not because they played this show at Nectar Lounge, you know, one night, whatever. Yeah. Um, and for, for better or for worse, people aren't congregating in physical spaces anymore. Like they, they congregate online and you can, you can rail against that and bitch about it, or you can (laughs) meet them where they are and they're online. They're sitting at home online. And if you reach them there, then maybe they'll get their asses out to <laughs> a yeah, physical yeah. space. Yeah, I mean, that just because they need to be in the way that they know that Black Mirror is a badass show and it's worth their time to pay for that access to it and sit down and watch it. Right. They need to know that Happy Orchestra is this thing that is great and that they like. Yeah. In order for them to leave their house yeah. <laughs> and spend, you know, whatever three what times a, the amount for one night. What a mind fuck black mirror is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, yes. I've watched like three episodes and I'm not, I'm not sure I should go back. Cause it's just, it, it leaves me feeling so, so terrible, but it's so well, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth in those episodes. I think that's why it's so effective, but yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, I just, I, I, and, but it's also freeing because, instead of having only access to the physical bodies in my city, I have access to the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think if I, uh, do you, are you familiar with what Patreon is? Yeah, we have a Patreon. Account. You have a Patreon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started doing Patreon a couple months ago and I told myself if I putting out my music to the entire world, can't find a hundred people to pay me three or five dollars. I should quit anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. 
I know. I mean, in Seattle, I have I have this excuse, you know, like there's the, there aren't that many people, and they're not doing that many. Blah, blah, blah. Fucking Amazon. But, yeah, but in <laughs> in the entire planet, I really can't at this point with my music get it. If I can't get a hundred people, I shouldn't be doing it. Right. right. And so it it really crystallizes. What are you doing? And are you getting some kind of feedback for it? Yeah. And if you're not getting feedback on the internet to any degree, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, and and it's just a it's just a way to kind of um, direct your your energy to something that works in a way that you can't just by playing local venues. Right. Right. And did you get a hundred people? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's only been a couple months, right? You know, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, I'm going to do this for a year and I, see. Okay, what I gotcha. Yeah. And so I've been, you know, I, I I sent it out to a small number of friends at first, and I'm sort of building up the library of what's on there. There are there are a handful of songs, handful of videos, mm-hmm. uh, and and once there's some substance there, I'll blast it out to everybody and really really shoot for the the hundred by the end of the year. Right, right. Uh, but um, you know. And if people want to check that out, it's it's patreon.com slash Tarik Music, T-A-R-I-K Music. about your, your online presence. I read uh, a few of your blog posts um, mm-hmm. and uh, first of all, my hat's off to you for just sitting down and writing and, <laughs> and, and putting out written content um, because I, like, I'm, I'm a writer myself and I, I love writing, I love reading and um, anytime I see somebody putting out actual written content that somebody has to sit down for five minutes and read, mm-hmm. uh, I, I love it. But you touched on a couple of uh, topics in those blog posts um, that I wanted you to, to sound off on. One was the union, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is non-existent in some cities and, and fairly dominant in other cities. Um, another one was low paying gigs. And, um, the other one was, uh, the night you spent with, uh, Dennis Chambers and Victor Wooten. Talking yeah. And, and it like you, you kind of recounted that evening, but it led you to another conversation about, um, uh, physical, conceptual, and emotional obstacles yeah. in your playing. Um, mm-hmm. So, so whichever one of those you want to <laughs> <a lot laughs> start with. Uh, uh, well, I'll just say that the writing is it's just like the the way that I'm very active on social media. It's just like my natural the way I think about things is to write through them. Yeah, and me so too. when I when I write an essay or whatever. It's because I'm trying to think through this thing that I know is bothering me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's my way of kind of coming to a conclusion and putting it out there as a way to get it challenged by other people. Mm-hmm. So it's a, just a really good sort of learning method um, and a way to kind of understand my surroundings. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, what were they? The union one? The yeah. gigs? I mean, we've, we've sort of talked about the low-paying thing mm-hmm. already basically the calculation is is it worth it anymore to go out and play at a venue right you, you also tied this into just band leaders and and the responsibility that band leaders have and that you have to 
kind of find the paying gigs and, and take care of your people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can't, we can't as collective musicians complain about how little we get paid. If when we want to play a gig, we don't pay people. (laughs) It's incumbent upon all of us to find money. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, there's this sort of, um, romantic idea about the broke musician that I think uh, people sort of like Mm -hmm. to be, um, that isn't helpful. (laughs) Um, but the other kind of thing that is sort of working against us is that there's, there's an idea that the things that earn money are bad things. Right. 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 You know, that you can't be doing something good for humanity or for yourself if you're getting a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Paychecks are just for selling out. <laughs> um, but in reality, I think if you're not getting money for what you're doing, it's because at the end of the day, it's not valuable to anybody. Mm. And, I, and I don't mean conceptually. You know, obviously music is valuable, but people only have so much money. And they have to weigh what they allocate their money to. And if they don't want to give you any of it, it's because what you do isn't at least as valuable as the thing they think is the least valuable that they spend their money on. Right? Right. And so if you don't have money to pay your band members, it's because you haven't convinced somebody that your band is worth spending money on. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, and that's a hard thing to do for a lot of reasons. You know, Spotify is one reason. Um, everybody, you can listen to everything ever recorded for $10 a month. So it's hard to justify paying you a thousand bucks for one performance. Right. Right. Uh, which is that ties into the union thing as well. But, um, man, uh, kind of getting circular here. Yeah, but. I know. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a it's a rat's nest of like yeah. what the fuck are we supposed to do? Yeah. Well, that that's it. It's just if you're going to play a gig, you have to think about what are you getting for it. If you're not getting money, are you really getting a performance or or practice experience that is worth the effort? And and also realizing that you're your music, the thing you create and your time and effort is being used to pay someone else's bills. Mm-hmm. When you play at a venue, which would otherwise be empty, but for your performance and you, you bring all those people out and they spend money there. Most of that money goes to the venue through the alcohol sales. And then the, the bank that gave that venue a loan is getting more money from your performance than you are. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. It's, it's unfair, but it's the reality. Those people have to be paid before you do. So given that reality, what are you getting out of playing a gig? Are you really getting a performance opportunity given that you're only playing probably for people that you brought out and have already seen you or, for an empty place (laughs) or is it a place where your background music and nobody's really paying attention to you anyway? Are you really getting a good practice opportunity given that the place probably has shitty sound, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and given the fact that you can just do it at home, you can just practice at home. You can just hang out. You don't have to like iron a shirt. You don't have to put up your gear. You can all just hang out, drink whatever you want. 
play as long as you want, stop when you want, you'll get a better practice experience there. Right. And you'll whether, get more, whether you're practicing alone or just like jamming with your with your yeah. people. As a band, you'll get a better practice experience. Right. You know, Get better, like because a lot of times the 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 motivation or justification for playing a gig is like, well, we just need to do this. We need to get better. It's a good practice. Just fucking practice at home. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier, and you're not giving a bank some money. So, um, yeah. The, I, the it, thing that uh, the thing that kind of resonated with me in in that um, blog you wrote was that if if you're not if you're getting paid little or no money. And there's not much else, uh, you know, to be gained from that gig from an experience standpoint or whatever. It's easy to uh, like that kind of situation breeds frustration and resentment. Yeah. Yeah. And and as as pros, you know, we we all end up in those situations that are less than ideal that we just have to power through. Um, and it's it's good to get that experience, like you know, just being able to deliver under adverse conditions whatever sure. they are. But if that becomes a pattern, mm-hmm. if that becomes the norm, then frustration and resentment like really take hold and, and can put you in this victim mentality where you're, you're suffering for your music, for your art yeah. when, when it, it shouldn't be suffering, no matter what level you're at, it yeah. should, it should not be suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it makes, it makes you feel hopeless Yeah, because you can only leave so many gigs where you played for 10 people and got 20 bucks you can only do that so many times before you're just fucking crushed yeah. you know and you feel like there's no end to this it's only getting worse and so that that blog was was my figuring out that the story i told myself in college was not true mm-hmm. that's that's what that the end of that was there is a better path to making the most out of what I do than doing it at a, at a gig that doesn't pay very well, because if it doesn't pay very well, that's a signal. That's Mm -hmm. a signal from the market. That's a signal from other people that that place is not valuable to them. And therefore you can't be valuable to them by being in that place. Right. So instead of performing, I put music online Mm -hmm. and instead of, well, performing at those venues, I still perform all the time, but (laughs) (laughs) instead of taking those low paying gigs, I've, I've directed that energy to recording stuff at home and putting it on a platform where people will actually look at it. And instead of thinking like, oh, it'll just be a good practice opportunity, I have people come over, I go to their house, and we practice at home. And I I like the idea of convincing people and entities with money that what you do is worth their money. Um, Because I think a a lot of musicians and a lot of bands um, don't think of that. They just – they do what they think – the people with money want. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, one, that's one thing they do, or they just do what they want and hope people with money come to them. Right. Right. So like if, if you think that, you know, the people with money want a cover band, a lot of people start a cover band or a tribute band. And, and a lot of times it works, they go out and make a bunch of money. Um, a, a good friend of mine in Kansas city once said, you can only say fuck the establishment until you <laughs> want some of the establishment's money. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, on, on the surface, that means, creating a cover band and taking that money. But, but I I love the idea you're talking about, which is going after the money with the product you want to create rather than the product you think they want. Well, yeah, because you can only do that so much without getting bitter. Right. You know, we all know the, the, the guys with the cover band that just fucking hate, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they have no respect for the people that hire them and, and, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. That can breed bitterness too. Um, but I think people 
on the other end, on the buying end, can recognize when you're sincere about what you're doing and what you're selling. And if you're selling what you, they, you think they want, it's, I don't think it's as exciting to them as selling to them what you are. You know, right. happy orchestra is me. Mm-hmm. It is my personality. And when, when those people are buying that band, they're buying me. And so, it, you know, I feel good about that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm more likely to deliver, to deliver a good show and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but, but yeah, thinking about why you're not getting money is valuable. That that's how people, you can only be successful if you earn money, and that's there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we've been we've been talking in terms of of you as a band leader, but I think it's a valuable lesson for sidemen too. Um, you know, look look around at the gigs you're playing, at the gigs you're getting called for, um, and if if the band leaders calling you don't have a lot to offer, you know, money wise or, or otherwise, you know, take a look at why you're not in demand from, you know, bigger, better acts. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And, and there, that's also a signal that, um, you're, when you take a gig from someone who doesn't have a lot of money to offer, you're taking a gig with someone who hasn't thought through those things, (laughs) right? you know, and who hasn't, who hasn't gone, put in the work to get that money there. You know, I'd like, I've gotten a couple grants from the city. That's another great source of money. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did that because I wanted to pay my band. Um, and, and only after I got that grant, did I start to be critical about the calls I was getting? Cause I was like, Hey, I, I make sure that I pay everybody a hundred bucks. Why, why isn't the, uh, Oh, Oh fuck. (laughs) You know? Um, and Yeah. yeah, it's a signal of something. So that, that was really just about, making sure that your efforts are rewarded in some way, Mm -hmm. because if they're not, you will burn out and it's just not sustainable. I also like the idea of, of, um, you know, we're talking about making a living and supporting yourself, but, but everything you're talking about is also in service of not burning out. Yeah. Um, and like we said earlier, keeping yourself sane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you because you have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just it's more important earning it. Sustainability is everything. You can only do something so long. It doesn't matter if it gets you a lot of money because right. you're not going to be able to do it for very long. Right, right. Uh, yeah, uh, it's all connected. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. So talk about this this night you had with uh, with Victor Wooten and Dennis Chambers. Sure. Um, and the, uh, the, the thoughts that came after that gig. Yeah. Um, so it was a double bill uh, with Wooten's trio, which was uh, with Dennis Chambers and Bob Franceschini, who's a great tenor player. Um, and uh, I was playing with uh, the Living Daylights, which are uh, a trio of uh, saxophone and electric bass and drums. And their drummer's down in San Francisco, so he couldn't make that gig. Um, and it's, you know, jazz fusion stuff. Um <clears throat> And, um, 
we were, we, you know, <laughs> we're all very excited. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I, I've done some bills with some bigger bands before and there wasn't really a lot of interaction. So I was kind of expecting that same deal, mm-hmm. um, you know, to probably meet them for it, but for it to be short for them, probably not to watch the set, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> But uh, we're in sound check and they just walk in and sit right in front of the stage and just watch us. Wow. Yeah. And I'm just like, fuck. <laughs> no. Not supposed to see this. You know, and we, we were we were rehearsing. We hadn't rehearsed yet. You know, so it was like, this is not what I want Dennis Chambers to see me playing. Right. First time. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I had kind of gone through the music already. Uh, and I had been playing a lot around that time. So my, my body was just working, you know, Mm -hmm. despite how I was so nervous, you know, my, my heart was beating, my hands were, they felt like they were shaking, but I was playing. All right. Yeah. Um, we finished sound check and, um, you know, I just like run to the bathroom to just calm down (laughs) and And, uh, I come out and Chambers is there and he's got this big smile on his face. He just throws his arm around me and he's real friendly and we start hanging and talking. Um, and he's just really jovial and, uh, very complimentary and talking about how he's excited to see us and asked if I wanted to sit in, which was just like, you know, not what I expect. This is the opposite of what I expected to happen. Right, right. Um, and we hang out for probably an hour before we play. And by the time we get on stage, all my nerves are completely gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just been put at ease by the kindness and uh, generosity and, and, and just jovial spirit of Dennis Chambers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we play a great set. And um, uh, then they take the stage and fucking this band is just, um, you know, I've, I've seen Victor do his own thing before and I've listened to some of his records and it's amazing, but it's, there's kind of like a cheesiness to it. Yeah. There's that, a stick. About yeah, him, about him. That's he's just stylistically never been my, you know, I don't like choose to listen to Victor Wooten records that much. Right. Uh, and same with uh fleck tones, you know, there's like kind of a cheesiness, almost a smoothness about it, uh-huh. you know, and I, I don't see it to like be denigrating at all. It's just not my thing. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, I think just having Dennis up there and Bob is like a very straight ahead jazz guy. There was just a little more edge to it. Um, and that they just played so energetically and, and so locked in and, you know, all the good things that you'd expect to hear about those three guys. Um, it was just really, really amazing. Uh, to watch them. Uh, and, uh, they ask us to sit in and we go up there, we go up and we play footprints and it's kind of the same experience. It's sort of surreal, but I'm very comfortable and real fun and it goes well. And, um, so yeah, it just, it, it made me think about, um, my, how I carry myself on double bills, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I'm often very, you know, I keep to myself, I keep to my band. Sometimes I don't even talk to my own band members, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm dead or busy or whatever. Right. There, there is obvious, I was shown that there was obvious value to, to cultivating this sort of collective experience 
in the green room between everybody who's a part of the show. It makes it just made the whole night better. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as watching them, um, just their their fluidity and their complete mastery of their instrument was just like a small part almost of the whole thing. Um, there was clearly like this level of trust between the three of them that was evident and contributed a lot to the music, mm-hmm. uh, and, and just made them free to explore and, uh, do anything without hesitation. And there was sort of this like transcendent thing where, where because they have so much trust in their own ability physically and the ability of the people around them, it was almost like they weren't even making decisions anymore. Like they were just going and, 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 and being witness to this thing just as much as we were, they were like looking at each other and smiling and laughing, you know, like, like it wasn't, you know, their own decision making at work. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it reminded me of, um, this workshop that Jojo Mayer gave at, um, ground up festival, which is, uh, Michael league's snarky puppies festival. that happens every year in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And, um, someone asked him, uh, you know, like what's the hardest thing you've ever played or some, you know, weird question like that. And he, he was like, uh, brushes at, 60 beats per minute, you know, swing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, really weird. Not what you'd expect to answer, but, um, and then he talked about how he approaches, um, obstacles in his playing when he wants to play something that he can't, he goes through these three areas of, kind of uh, these three approaches to the problem there there's the physical just are my muscles um developed enough to mm-hmm. execute this thing you know is it too fast for me is it too loud for that speed whatever do i just need to train some muscle memory or is it a, a, a mental like can i conceptualize the movement in a in a way that relates to something i can already do you know, like, like playing paradiddles as 16th notes isn't hard. Mm-hmm. Playing them as triplets will fuck you up, even though it's the same exact movement, right? right so right. that that's a mental shift. And, and there are there are ways you can relate things to other things mentally that can help you. You know, like if we're playing something that has a lot of limb independence, you know, sometimes tuning into one limb as opposed to the other can help you execute something. Right. That's a mental shift. And in that bucket, I would put like stylistic shifts too. Like if you're trying to um, find the the particular inflection or you know flavor of a style, that can be, I think, a conceptual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're relating it to some some stylistic thing that you know what it sounds like, whatever. Right. right. Um, and then the last uh, conceptual thing was an emotional like are you just nervous right now? Are you <laughs> upset? Are you, are you scared? You know, is there some emotional block that's, that's, um, preventing you from executing? And that's the thing that most people don't get to. Mm-hmm. And that to me, watching the three of them was the thing that separated them from everybody else. Yeah. 
there was just no, especially Victor. I mean, if, if, if any of you have listened to him talk or read his, you know, he's a very spiritual, emotionally uh, aware person. Yeah. And you can tell that he's done a lot of work around that in relation to his playing. Mm-hmm. And so there's just no emotional blockage whatsoever. There's no fear. There's no, um, um, you know, nervousness around pulling something off or, or like embarrassment about playing something cheesy or whatever, right. you know, he, it's just pure freedom from him, from his own emotional baggage. Right. Uh, and that's, that's part of what allows him to sound so good and be so, um, fluid. There's nothing in his way, and he sounds exactly like Victor Wooten should sound. Right, right. And and that was, uh, he was also at that same festival, and he talked about how when he was young, um, he he didn't take any lessons. He had no guidance on the bass when he first had it in his hands. And his brothers just let him do whatever he wanted to do without telling him, well, you should do it this way, you should do it this way, whatever. And so... You know, a lot of us, when we are introduced to our instruments, we're, we're introduced to them in this very narrow um, window of what's allowable. Right. Right. And so you learn very early to turn off your natural instincts. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then later on, when you want to reintroduce those natural instincts, there's a lot of like, yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not allowed to do this. You know, right. there's a lot of hesitance because you've been taught from the very beginning, shut that off. You're mm-hmm. supposed to do it this way. And he didn't have any of that. Yeah. He had years of whatever I want to do is okay. And it's cool. And, and then his, his family started to introduce, like, you could try this, you could try that. And so the result of that is after 50 years of complete natural application of Victor Wooten to the base, that's what comes out. Right. Uh, it's, it's so amazing if, if you think about it, how, how much those emotional aspects can, can hinder your performance. And I think you're right. Most, most musicians, myself included, like we think about the physical thing, we think about the conceptual thing. Um, but you know, on a, on a given performance, um, I'm worried about how I'm being perceived uh, by fellow band members or by the audience. I'm worried about, you know, who, who I'm playing with, what kind of an impression I'm making on them. Um, and it's all ego driven. I think, I think what, what we're getting at is that a, a musician like Victor Wooten is able to perform without ego, yeah. And, and, um, and it makes him better. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, to a lot of people, he's like, yeah, he's fucking Victor Wooten. He, right. <laughs> he has no reason to be nervous, but you know, he got, he's that way because he's not nervous. Right. And you're, I, I, I totally agree. Like the thought I think I have the most when I'm playing, the thing I catch myself thinking the most is like, what badass thing should I be doing right now? Right. It, I'm being too boring right now. Like, just you know, nobody cares. <laughs> right. Just play what what you feel like should be played, and and if that's not good enough, the, either this isn't the gig for you, or you're having an off night. But whatever, there's nothing you can do about it anyway in the moment. Yeah. Um, so, and I think like finding a way to to shed your ego a little bit and play with less fear makes you a more authentic musician, um, mm-hmm. and and that makes you. Um, 
a, a better person to play with, a better person to listen to. Like everybody in the room just gets a better feeling from everything that's coming from you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sound, sound wise or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you, you, you disconnect from feeling responsible for mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. um, if, if, if you're, if you're really concerned about your own ability and the perception of you and you make a mistake, you know, that's going to be very evident to everybody around you that you're worried about it. You know, you're going to make a face, you're going to be real sour after the gig and it's just going to be a fucking bummer. (laughs) You know, if you, if on the other hand, you're like very, you're, you sit down and you say, okay, I'm here. I've done all the work I can do. Here we go. Mm -hmm. And and you just do your best and that's it. And you make a mistake. You're going to laugh about it. Right. You know, because you're just going to say, well, (laughs) here we go. That was it. Mm -hmm. Whatever. And you're going to laugh. Everybody's going to look at you. Maybe, probably not. But if they do, they're going to see you smiling. They'll probably smile. And at the end, you'll have a joke about it and the day goes on. Right. And um, this, this, is, this ties into something we've, we've been mentioning lately, which is taking, taking what you do seriously without taking yourself seriously. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to do because our, our identity, like our self-worth is just so wrapped up in, in what we do. Yeah. Um, but if, if, you can, if you can separate it and say, you know, my <laughs> my worth as a human is is not necessarily tied to this performance. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that comes from the idea that the music exists without you. Right. You you aren't you aren't the one making the music. You are training your body to access the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so. If, if, if you're the one making the music and it's not good, then yeah, your worth is not high. Mm -hmm. You know, if the music exists out there and a lot of, a lot of like really famous songwriters talk about this concept of just like being ready to receive the song or, you know, something around that idea as, as opposed to being the one generating the song, you're like, you're calming yourself so that you can be ready to receive this melody or, Mm or this lyric or whatever. And it's the same with performing. You're not, you're not generating these ideas. They exist. You are training your body and your mind to be ready to access them. And then you go for it. Right. Um, right. And if, if you're in the right state, if you've done the physical work and you're not blocked emotionally, then that stuff will go through you. Right. And if it doesn't, it's not because you're in, <laughs> you know, it's not your fault necessarily. It's just like, uh, it just, it just wasn't in the cards that day. Right. And, and going back to what Jojo said, like, why wasn't I able to access that in yeah. that moment? And sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's a physical or conceptual thing, but I think more often than we realize it's an emotional thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like John Clayton said, if, if, if you're good to the music, the music will be good to you. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's only, you know, physically, technically, there isn't that much music that requires the highest level of right. physical, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, the strength or speed right. and, or, or conceptual knowledge. Most you know? gigs are not Olympic events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, so once you've reached that, that kind of baseline to a, a certain level of physical and intellectual readiness, which is not that high for most performances. Right. All that's left is the emotional stuff. So yeah. if you're not executing playing some relatively easy music, it's not because you like didn't practice enough. <laughs> you know? uh, 
at least physically, you didn't practice just like calming yourself or, or getting out of your own head. That's the practice. And it's like all this very woo woo, like Buddhist <laughs> meditative stuff. But it's well, it's, I mean, you can you can take it in that kind of spiritual or metaphysical direction. But I don't, I don't think you have to. I mean, you know, it, there's there's practicality in just yeah. mental balance. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, yeah, I, I agree. I just I just, uh, you know. When I when I talk about this stuff, especially with younger students, I get this like they start giving me this weird look, like where is this guy yeah, going? Well, what kind of trip are you on? Yeah, this is getting like, can you just show me sixteenth notes? Right, right. It's like, yeah. So, so you try to transcribe to, this Brecker, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to be sort of open to this other emotional thing that that is very outside of what normally gets talked about in a practice room or in right. a at a lesson or, or at school. So, um, you know, Kenny, everybody's talks about that effortless mastery book, Kenny Warner's book. And, right. Uh, and Victor's written a book that I'm sure is full of the, the exact same sort of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for talking. It was, it was great. Yeah. Uh, it's great meeting you. Yeah, man. I've checked out some of the podcasts and it's, it's, it's a cool little resource. So, so it's cool that you're doing it and thanks for having me uh, be a part of it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, man. We'll, uh, we'll talk with you soon. Yeah, and uh, send me your uh, Patreon link. Will do. Absolutely. Be well. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Tarek. If you want to check out his Patreon page, go to patreon.com slash Tarek Music. He's up to quite a bit there in Seattle, and you can see and support it all right there. Once again, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a like and a follow on YouTube. Give us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. And, of course, keep in touch with us if you've got something else to relate. We'll see you next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.